I grew up in Perth in a loving, down-to-earth and rational family. We were Church of England types of a very anemic variety. Now I would call us cultural Christians. It was clear we were there for the singing rather than the God bits. And I'm still really fond of those hymns and I still love singing. But I really had no way to access the idea that religion had anything to do with spirituality or with me as a being, despite the churches and the sense of reverence that hung around the occasional visits to these holy places. The mystery of it all evoked in me a sense of longing. Things of the spirit were private and secret. We didn't seem to have the language or even the context to talk about spirit. My folks had long-standing friendships with Catholics, and at a certain point I had a real interest in them. They were the high end of woo-woo for me. A wafer as the body of Christ? Wine as the blood of Christ? Really? They might as well have been druids. When the 70s hit, I was a teenager. Catholicism had lost its allure and it all became clear. Real spirituality was in the Far East. And as steeped as I was in Somerset, Maughan and Kipling, it didn't occur to me for ages that India is actually north of where I was and the Far East came from the English perspective of the world I'd swallowed in with my rusks. So bald-headed blokes with long beards, dressed in orange robes on snow-capped mountains at the top of India. Yoga, mantras, chanting, gongs, that's where spirituality was. Because how could it be here, in Perth? And that's what I find really refreshing about the concept of spirituality today, is how down-to-earth it is. Enlightenment is available to anyone, right here, right now. In fact, that's the only place it's ever been and ever will be, right here, right now. And the tools you need are a curious mind, clear and open inquiry, and honesty, a radical honesty. Hence my annoyance at the paraphernalia of the New Age that still feels the need to anoint the idea that we are more than flesh and blood with incense and dolphins and pictures of American Indians. And I don't want to be grinchy about this. I love salt lamps. Just that my mission is to encourage the ordinariness of spirit. The fact that spirit is what we all are and its deepest manifestations can be found sitting under a mulga tree just as well as under the Buddha's famous fig tree. I was thinking the other day how no one has a problem with the idea of measuring the pulsing of the human heart through an ECG. That's the medical test that monitors the electrical activity generated by the heart as it contracts and expands. Also the EEG, another medical test used to help diagnose a number of conditions of the brain. But to call that electrical activity Wei Qi or or spirit or prana and detect it in other organs and systems in the body without a machine? Oh no, that's definitely woo-woo. And this despite centuries of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine and indigenous tribal know-how. And despite Einstein and all those other scientists now paddling around in integrative disciplines like psychoneuroimmunology. Science has met and hopped into bed with spirit, but there are those who would still rigidly separate the head from the heart, the body from the soul, and glorify the practices that maintain these separations. The thing is, spirit is as ordinary as Vegemite and toast, and just as awesome. The concept I'm opposing to this way of thinking is holism. Holistic thinking is big thinking, it's whole systems thinking, it's inclusive and capable of allowing complexity where all the cycles that make up life work together to create something that can be much more powerful and much bigger than the sum of all parts.
When I told friends about the idea I had for this podcast, they said that I should not on any account mention quantum physics. But I'm going to, because there's an expansiveness in quantum physics that I find enthralling. And who knows, if this is news to some of you, you might also get a kick out of this as a way to background the paradigm shift I'm always going on about. So bear with me. It would be good to have a little slideshow here and three images for you to look at. I'll put the images up, but if you're listening in a non-visual situation, I'll describe what I mean. The first side demonstrates a Newtonian atom, a conceptualization of what I was told growing up were the building blocks of life. This shows a nucleus at the centre with elegant movements of matter orbiting around the nucleus like planets around the sun. Now this is a bottom-up type of scenario and it posits that matter builds on matter until a thing, say a frog, is made. And there is a frog. But is it possible that life is miraculously formed from raw, insensate material? Quantum physics says that it's a lot more mysterious than that. Slide 2 shows the new school quantum notion of an atom. This shows a tiny little pinprick of a nucleus that sits in the centre of a cloud of electrons. The atom here is depicted as being 99.9999999% energy and 0.000001% matter. Materially, there's not much there. The third slide gives us the atom that quantum physics tells us is the most realistic version of an atom. For the benefit of ears, there's literally nothing there. This is the Empress Clothes version of an atom. It is, and I quote, no thing materially, but all things potentially. When the smallest particles of matter are broken down into subatomic particles, what is left is vast amounts of space filled with possibilities and probabilities. Particles, matter, it seems they are just concepts. A recent Body Talk lecturer gave us the following description to help us to visualise what is going on. Imagine a footy field with a grain of sand in the centre. Imagine another footy field next to it with another grain of sand in the centre. This is the no thing materially. There is a lot of space. But wait, it gets stranger. Quantum physicists discovered that the person who is observing the tiny particles that make up atoms actually affects the behaviour of the energy and matter of this atom. They have demonstrated that electrons seem to be able to exist simultaneously in an infinite array of possibilities or probabilities in their invisible field of energy. But only when an observer focuses attention on any location of any one electron does that electron appear. In other words, a particle cannot manifest in reality, that is the ordinary space-time as we know it type of reality, until we observe it. So at the subatomic level, energy responds to mindful attention and becomes matter. And in this sense, we create our own reality. This explains, and I'm using the air thingies, spontaneous healing, the throw-away-your-crutches stuff that happens way outside the norms of medical understanding, but possibly doesn't help us in the day-to-day, step-by-step way that normal humans require. Holism and quantum physics are concepts that open up our minds to realities it can't grasp, but doesn't necessarily allow us to manipulate matter to achieve real-world outcomes. Things are what they are, until they aren't. And that's the kind of annoying statement people who swim in the world of consciousness and awareness like to make. From a physicist, 
the material universe is a dynamic web of interrelated events. And obviously, humans, you and me, we're part and parcel of this dynamic web. So the self is actually a collection of actions, networked with every other action, stretching all the way to the beginning of causality. And this is definitely where science hops into bed with metaphysics and creates new life. I just wanted to come at the paradigm shift that feeds into energy-based health systems and regenerative agriculture with some top science as well as spiritual teaching as backup. Let's leave quantum physics for some examples of whole of landscape thinking, holistic thinking from the agricultural world. So Rod O'Bree is a fan of biodiversity. I met him in 2014 when he kindly let me use a few paddocks to grow a crop of spelt. I bought a tractor and spent a season as an unpaid farmhand putting in a modest crop and working with sheep. If you're interested, the story of the spelt project is in a little booklet and available to read online. This property, Yanjet, is just east of Geraldton and has been applying land restoration and rehydration techniques for 10 years. Yanjet is 800 hectares of what used to be some of the most desirable grazing and cropping land near Geraldton. It obviously made the first settlers, the Grants, big money. It has a grand old house on it with 15-foot ceilings, a sloped roof built for snow, massive rooms including a ballroom and a tennis court. By the time Rod got there in 2009, the servants were long gone, the grandeur was somewhat faded and its rolling hills were bare and crops were the result of intense applications of chemical weed killers, pesticides and fertilisers. Before Rod and his family brought Yanjet, they had a few acres in Wurri, a semi-rural suburb close to Geraldton, where they kept racehorses. He and his family hand-fed these athletes the finest quality nuts and grains money could buy and lavished the sort of attention that horses need to perform at their best. They then bought another 40 acres nearby so they could rest the 50 or so horses that they weren't actively training. This scrubby bit of bush out of Jero had not been grazed or cultivated for years. The family made trips to make sure that the horses were happy and eventually they noted that the horses were not just looking happy, they were positively glowing and sported the dappled coats that signal a truly contented and healthy nag. So, Rod thought, why were these hand-fed nags lagging behind the pasture-fed mob? When he walked this land and looked at what was on offer for the grazing horses, he realised that the paddocks were alive with over 40 different types of herbs, grasses and weeds. So the animals were able to eat what they needed when they needed it. It occurred to him that no amount of careful feeding could emulate the effect of grazing done on paddocks where the soil is truly alive and the plants correspondingly nutrient-rich and varied. This was Rod's eureka moment. He became a big fan of biodiversity. Rod carried this transformational experience with him to Yanjet. I'm currently working with him and the loose crew associated with the Anjet to position this land as a template for rehydration of the whole of the Chapman River catchment area. As Rod already runs a food distribution business out of Jero, he's really keen to tell the story of food coming out of this area and linking it to a bigger story of local farmers and their coordinated efforts to rehydrate and regenerate the land while increasing production and their own farm profits. When Rod first got to Yanjet in February 2009, 
they got a good rain event of over 20 millimetres and watched it run off the property carrying sediment and chemicals down to the sea in Champion Bay, 25 kilometres to the west. 24 hours later, there was not a puddle or sign of water to be seen. Ten years later, after it rains, the water stays in the creek and there's the expectation that there will now be enough water held underground as well as in the pools to maintain permanent water supplies, whatever the season brings. The small amount of water that now leaves Yanjet land is clean, a gift to our fishing industry. Rod worked with hydrologist Peter Andrews applying his principles of rehydration using techniques to slow the movement of water across the land. They did this by blocking at strategic points in the gouged out creeks and creating banks along the contours of the land to keep the water high in the landscape. Understanding where to place these interventions is key, but with trial and error, Rod got a handle on the interplay of water and earth and started seeing great results from pretty inexpensive methods. Yanjit is named for a type of wetland bulrush. The roots of this water-loving plant were a major food source for the original Aboriginal people and harvested in autumn just after the first rains. It was admired as a tasty carbohydrate in diaries of the first white explorers. There are now healthy stands of this food ready for the coals if need be. The old paradigm when trying to restore the land would be to replant – to bring in the tube stock and a load of spades and busloads of kids to do the work. Great idea as a value add, but the main event should always be to start fixing the water system and allowing nature to do what it does best, clothe herself in green. Once the water starts staying in the land, sediment, instead of storming off the property, starts to build where it is dropped as the water slows and it starts to pool. And as high ground develops, seeds, especially the natives, start sprouting. This is exactly what happened on Yanjet when the water system started functioning properly. The native seeds started growing in exponential numbers. The first to appear were the pioneers, the woody shrubs, which at Yanjet meant the prickly acacias, or the hakeas, you know the ones with the big hard seeds and the needle-like spines that would take your eye out, and the weeds, of course. The despised star thistles used to be a monoculture on some paddocks at Yanjet and kicked in early on in the plant sequencing as the soil started to build. And just an aside on weeds, Annie Razor Rowland, an expert weed eater, names plants like thistles as the rock stars of any landscape. They're rock stars in that they've evolved under tricky conditions to live hard, have heaps of sex, seed up and die in quick time. These plants evolved in conditions that made them disturbance specialists, so they have a particular fondness for humans. We are, of course, the biggest and most effective of all the disturbance specialists. As the star thistles bloomed, the powers that be, represented by the Ag Department and surrounding farmers, were calling for Rod's head. Good farmers would be bringing in the herbicides to knock these weeds out, allowing the whole cycle of bare soil erosion and loss to repeat with the next rain event. Rod held his nerve. Peter Andrews had convinced Rod that there's a natural succession of plants that needs to be cycled through as the land heals. Weeds aren't weeds in this scenario. They're simply plants with a job to do. From the pioneers, we go to the broadleaf plants, and by the time they're taking hold, the soil is becoming fertile enough to allow the sweet winter annual grasses to thrive. These steal the sugars out from under the noses of the hardliners, and usher in the native perennials. Once the glory of this land, 
native perennials were the first to be eaten out under the land management efforts of colonisers. And there's a bit of a push in agriculture to reinstate these perennials, mostly South African varieties. But nature, if given the green light, can coax long-forgotten seeds out of the beleaguered corners where they sit in secret, biding their time, waiting for the colonisers to finally get out from under their European filter and join the dots on what could be. Perennials used to carpet the rangelands and much of the wheat belt in WA, providing food for biological communities and holding the soil fertility and moisture together through the dry summer months. If you want more on this, the original Wild Food from the Rangeland podcast has a few stories based around the perennials and the role they play in the rangelands. There are weeds on Rod's land now, but they are part of a much bigger mix of plants. The soil conditions are now ripe to support anything he wants to grow, and Mother Nature, the god in this context, continues to do what she does best, clothe herself with green, instituting biodiversity and fertility. So, magic happens when you start working with whole systems. Out near Perendry, another Rod, Rod Butler, has been having his own revolution on Gimlet Ridge Farm, tough land that lies between agricultural and station country. This rod has been trialling regenerative farming methods for years. He grows sheep. Now with pastures rich with a healthy mixture of greens, he's observing and conducting the complex relationships that play between his animals, the land, the plants, people, the energy and mineral cycles, all within the context of holistic management. Since the year 2000, he reckons he grows about four times more pasture than he did before and has reduced his farm running costs by about two-thirds. Now these are loose figures. You could drive a truck through them, as Rod himself said, but that is the nature of regen agriculture. At the moment, it is reckoned in the lived experience of individual farmers who are stepping into a new way of managing. It lives at the kitchen table and at barbecues, and in conversations over the fence. The serious, scientifically verifiable peer-to-peer data is yet to be gathered. In 2018, there was a breakthrough for the soil carbon sequestration story. A process designed to measure soil carbon was finally legislated, called, not surprisingly, the Measured Soil Carbon Sequestration Methodology, we now have the baseline government-approved method that will allow the soil carbon industry to get going. Once carbon capture can be quantified, it can be traded, and farmers can start to be paid on their capacity to boost soil carbon in their paddocks. The gains are enormous. Farmers get soils with the capacity to hold water and grow fertility, they get resilience in the face of the changing climate, and they get to increase production and farm income as they do it. Back to Rod, the perendry sheepman. One of his main regenerative tools is intensive rotational grazing. Here is just one story to try and express the magic of whole systems work. He needed to move 1,400 lambing ewes through a number of paddocks. Conventional farming produces a lot of no's when it comes how to deal with lambing ewes. But Rod's been working closely with his sheep for some time and they trust him to show them a good time. Rod let this mob into a 20-acre paddock. The sheep tackled the whole spread of greens on offer. Two hours later, he moved them out, noting that all plants had been eaten down to within two or three inches and every square inch of the paddock had been trampled, urinated and pooed on. 
A few days later, he circled back to the 20-acre paddock and was blown away by the exponential regrowth on the stubble. It's counterintuitive to me that intensive grazing within such brittle landscapes can stimulate turbo growth. But this is whole systems magic. Believe it. Such fertility tickling is a testament to a bloke called Alan Savory, the grandfather of regenerative agriculture. His holistic management ideas are being trialled worldwide under the general umbrella of techniques that define the term regenerative agriculture. There is great stuff brewing, and a lot of it centering on the Emissions Reduction Fund established by the federal government, another brick in the edifice that will become carbon trading. Things are finally moving after a very low point over 10 years ago when Tony Abbott destroyed the carbon tax, a tax that would have seen us light years ahead of the pack had it been allowed to develop, and not to mention Kevin Rudd dropping the ball before him. But it's the big polluters that will be driving the new carbon credit industry. They have factored carbon in on their spreadsheets for a long time now, waiting for government to settle a chaos and make a jump into this new world. Those in the oil and gas industry in Australia, and think of the pollution-heavy LNG projects coming online in the northwest of WA, they know they'll be exporting into a global market to nations that are serious about becoming carbon neutral. They face being hit with tariffs that will screw with their profits. Fossil fuels always came with a heavy environmental price tag. Now they're looking at actually having to redress and deal with that cost. So behind the scenes, all this is happening and the opportunity for businesses to start trading in carbon credits and supporting ecological regeneration is huge. The bigger game is in natural capital. Soon to be launched on the digital stock exchange as the new asset that will replace, run alongside... I really don't know, the gold standard. At the moment, carbon credits are the only aspect of natural capital able to monetize processes that support ecological biodiversity and health. Imagine when clean water, clean air and biodiversity start being the go-to measures for business operations. And this, unlike Bitcoin and the like, will be backed by real assets, the land and the state of its ecological health. Here's a news flash from the land of primary producers. Did you know that the first farmer in the world to ever be paid for sequestering soil carbon on a farm under a government-backed carbon credit fund lives in West Gippsland in Victoria? His name is Neil Olson, and this all came to fruition in March this year, 2019. Farmers will be able to continue their farm businesses producing food or fibre while being paid to practice regenerative methods of farming that build their soil and increase production. The numbers have been crunched. According to global group Regeneration International, if just 15% of agricultural land in Australia was developed to store rather than lose carbon by changing their production practices, then we could become a greenhouse gas neutral nation. ScoMo, are you listening to this? Here is something supportive and thoughtful to share with the Tuvalu PM and our other Pacific neighbours. So none of what the two rods have achieved is easy. Let's call it rather profoundly simple. Principles are great, but every farm and farmer are different and have to find their own pathway to redemption as they embrace the complexity of working with whole systems. 
There is a huge gap that lies between deciding to transition to new land management ideas and believing that it can be done. I haven't even touched on the social difficulties, the isolation and derision that the two Rods and their families have copped over the years as they came up against the sanctioned farming conventions. There's nothing easy about implementing a paradigm shift on the ground and long-term backup will be needed to support transitions to more nature-based farming methods. But I really can't think of a better or more sane investment to make. Please sign me up.